Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Zinzi and Tabisolo Hoko. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Nigerian security forces have cracked down on peaceful protesters in Lagos after mass demonstrations against police brutality. The year 2020 marks the 75th anniversary of the United Nations and its founding charter. And in economics news, Kenya's agriculture ministry makes new proposals aimed at restoring it to its former status as a key foreign exchange earner. But first, the news with Onel Nzinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Lulu. Authorities in Nigeria ordered an immediate nationwide deployment of anti-riot police following what they say are increased attacks on police facilities. This in response to ongoing protests against alleged police brutality, which they say have turned violent. A 24-hour curfew has been imposed in Lagos State, which authorities say is indefinite. Amnesty International says at least 15 people have been killed since the protests began against the special anti-robbery squad known as SOS, which has since been disbanded. However, protesters defied the curfew again, blocking roads in the city and calling on the government to listen to their demands. Meanwhile, the United Nations is closely following the protests in which Nigerians are calling for an end to human rights violations. This follows reports of that Nigerian soldiers opened fire on people protesting against alleged police brutality in the Lekki district of the commercial capital Lagos, shown Bryce Peace reports. Thousands of Nigerians have demonstrated for two weeks against a police unit called the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, or SARS, that rights groups like Amnesty International has for years accused of extortion, harassment, torture and murder. Eyewitnesses report seeing soldiers firing ammunition towards the crowd, hitting some people. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, backed by his deputy Amina Mohamed, who is Nigerian, has stressed the importance of respect for peaceful protests and freedom of assembly and called for security forces to exercise maximum restraint in policing demonstrations. The Supreme Court in Burundi has sentenced former President Pierre Buyoya to life in prison for involvement in the murder of his successor in the early 1990s. Buyoya's lawyer says he will appeal the decision, the BBC's Grant Ferret. In 1993, Burundi's first democratically elected and first Hutu president, Melchior Ndadaye, had been in office for little more than three months when he was seized by soldiers during a coup attempt and bayoneted to death. His assassination led to reprisal killings of Tutsis and the country descended into more than a decade of civil war. An estimated 300,000 people died. Mr. Buyoya was not in court for today's sentencing. He's now an African Union envoy based in Mali. He's previously dismissed the case against him as politically motivated. Observers from the African Union and the Economic Community of West African States have said elections in Guinea were conducted transparently despite opposition claims of irregularities. On Monday, opposition leader Silio Diallo declared himself winner, saying his own tally gave him a first-round victory over President Alpha Conde. Diallo's claim was swiftly rejected by the Electoral Commission, which called it premature and void. Sunday's election was conducted in a tense atmosphere, although Security Minister Damantang Kamara said no major incidents were registered. ECOWAS Peace and Security Commissioner urged candidates to resort to legal avenues if they are aggrieved.
And lastly, enlightened Christian gathering pastor Shepherd Bushiri and his wife Mary, who are of Malawian origin based in South Africa, expected to appear in the country's Pretoria Magistrate Court. South Africa's Special Investigation Unit, the Hawks, confirmed this after the couple was arrested. Bushiri's wife Mary was arrested at a residence while her husband headed himself over to the police. The couple have been arrested for alleged involvement in fraud and money laundering. Hawks spokesperson Gatla on Tuesday, the team made a further arrest of another couple also allegedly involved in the same case. The woman, 39 years old, was arrested at her residence and the husband, after trying to evade police, handed himself over at the Silverton police station with an entourage of attorneys. The second couple is expected to appear in the Pretoria Magistrates Court soon. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Tsinsi. Your sports news up next with Fili Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, I'm Fili Lingwati. We're kicking off with football news. Barcelona coach Ronald Koeman lamented a red card for Gerard Pique in the 5-1 Champions League victory over Ferenavros. That will keep the experienced defender out of next week's trip to Juventus. Pique was sent off by Swiss referee Sandro Scherra with 20 minutes to go after a blatant pullback in the box on the jersey of Ferenvaro's striker Tomac Nguyen after he had been well beaten for pace. Lionel Messi became the first player to score in 16 consecutive Champions League seasons while Ansu Fati, Felipe Coutinho, 17-year-old Pedri and Usman Dembele were on target in what was in the end a commanding performance from the Catalan side. Barca faced Juventus in Turin in their next Champions League clash on the 28th of October, but before that have El Clasico against Real Madrid on Saturday. Cricket news. Stunning cameos from West Indians Chris Gale and Nicolas Puran outshone a brilliant century from Shikha Dawan as the Kings 11 Punjab won their IPL match against the Delhi Capitals by five wickets at the Dubai International Cricket Stadium. Dawan's extraordinary run of form continued with a brilliant unbeaten 106 as he almost single-handedly led the Capitals to a total of 164 for 5. But Gale, on 29 from 13 balls, took 26 from medium pacer Tusha Deshpande's first over, launching him for three fours and two sixes to put his team well ahead of the game. Here's commentary. He has so dear me. By Shimron Hetmeyer. Here's another one. Here's another one. Who wants this? Who wants this? Not easy. No oh dear. Marcus Stoinis. Last ball of the over. Nisham goes. Bang goes. Six goes. Game over. Says thank you very much. Kings 11 Punjab. Two more points to add to their tally. We're not going to the last over tonight, says Nisham. And finally, golf news. International golf will return to South Africa in November after a nine-month hiatus due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The Joburg Open has been confirmed for the week after the Masters Tournament in late November at the Ren Park Golf Club. The spectator-free tournament, co-sanctioned by the European Tour and the Sunshine Tour, will be played in a bow bubble. Even with all the restrictive health protocols, it is still hoped this tournament and others soon to be announced will help to kickstart the economy. Sunshine Tour Commissioner Thomas Abbott says tournament that will be co-sanctioned by the European Tour will be viewed in over 300 million homes worldwide. And that's your Sport News this hour. It's 7.09 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Nigerian security forces have cracked down on peaceful protesters in Lagos after mass demonstrations against police brutality in recent days brought Africa's largest city to a standstill. Graphic scenes of pro- 
protesters fleeing amid crackling gunfire at Lecky Tollgate in the heart of the city filled social media in the hours after Governor Babajide Sanwo Olu imposed a curfew on Lagos State for 24 hours starting at 4 p.m. local time. Our, our correspondent Collins Atohengbe joins us on the line from Lagos. Good morning, Collins, and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Josie. Now, Collins, the scenes that we're seeing posted on social media are very graphic and very worrying and scary. What's the latest situation on the ground there? Uh, for the moment, my experience on negotiations in particular are uh, expecting the government to say something about what has happened to like my very gory. Although the, the uh, coffee persists, have been announced by the Lagos State Governor, and the government is watching up on it. Chances are that uh, the riot policemen will be deployed to man the places that the army would have uh, captured uh, from the protesting last. The, there are fires, bombing fires, or at least there were at uh, various places, and uh, the method which uh, led to that. Uh, out of the ordinary because uh, nobody expected that to happen. Now, give us a brief background of the protests and, uh, you know, what are people really fighting for? Uh, We've seen reports in recent weeks speaking of police brutality and, uh, you know, this is what the fight was about. But just give us a background in terms of what the issues are on the ground in Nigeria. There are lots of unemployed youth across Nigeria. People who have gone through the university, the polytechnic, they have done the National Youth Service uh, program, they have participated, and uh, those, these have been piling up for so long. And then the, the special anti-robbery force unit of the police would be a youth on the street. Uh, because he had a Rastafari hairstyle, or he has a phone on him, or he is carrying a laptop, they stop you, and uh, sometimes they never get to the police station, they drive you to an ATM and tell you to withdraw so much for them. And it's happening, there are a lot of people that this has happened to. The youth got fed up, Nigerians fed up, and then sometimes you discover that you buy a phone, and then, before you know it, it's a policeman that is calling you to say the phone you bought is stolen. Now, it's not treated uh, in a lawful manner. They come to you, they beat you up, and make you to pay enormously. And that has been happening. And uh, so the youth decided that it was time to end police brutality. And so they organized. The protest has been very, very peaceful. There are viral videos of security agents sponsoring, picking up staff, picking up hoodlums, taking them or directing them to places where there were uh, uh, riots, maybe to go and cause mayhem or to go and attack people protesters. The police did not provide the necessary protection for people who are protesting peacefully as required by the law. And so when these uh, hoodlums came in, they found a field day. People stood up and gave optimism, ordering the Inspector General of Police to clear the protesters within 24 hours, or was it 48 hours? Otherwise, they were going to rise up. And so the scene in Lagos was uh, very graphic. Uh, it is so the youth were well organized. They never... And governments are attesting to that. They know now that it is hoodlums that uh, hijacked. And so what they're trying to protect or say is that hoodlums hijacked the protest. And so they needed to act. All the while, they never did anything to make sure that the protesters were protected to, to such a level where it would be possible or impossible for hoodlums to get in between. At best, they are committed. So those were that was the major reason 
that things boils down. Even athletics is a toge with a gantry. And where this happened, before the soldiers came in shooting, the lights in those areas were put off, the CCTV cameras were removed, and once it was dark, they started shooting. You can find uh, a lot of live bullets all around uh, on the ground, and people died. It's so painful. It's not only in Lagos, people died in other political countries. In the new city, hoodlums took over, uh, attacked to prison, set in a free, uh, and things like that. Now, so Collins, now, Collins, has there been any response uh, thus far from the authorities following the shootings? And, uh, um, you know, and the reasons why live ammunition was used on a peaceful protest? Government has not said anything concerning that. And... Uh, Various uh, opinion leaders, people like Palano, uh, have come, had come as even previously to say that uh, the army should not be involved. They, they should not be used of arms, the use of force. They have been called on President Buhari to discuss, to speak to the nation, to speak to the youth. But he has not said anything. He's been meeting with officials, yes. Uh, but then that will not, their voices will not speak the mind of the president. And that is very, very, uh, to, to, to say the least, it's very disheartening. And yesterday at the floor, uh, on the floor of the National Assembly, the Senate has called on the president to address the nation. After not less than seven uh, youth had been killed, cut down, counted as at yesterday, there could be more. That's when the president will be speaking now to the youth. Be expecting compliance. Collins, it is uh, definitely a, a developing story that the whole world, uh, whole world is watching, uh, just looking at reaction on uh, social media with regards to, um, you know, internationally, uh, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, speaking out and calling for the leadership in Nigeria to do something about these uh, unfortunate uh, killings and loss of life and the use of life ammunition. Uh, we've got Rihanna also. Uh, a U.S. Uh, a superstar also reacting to this. A burner boy, uh, speaking of what you just told us about uh, the removal of cameras and, uh, you know, the use of live ammunition. This is a developing story that the whole world is watching and uh, we will be getting further updates to you uh, from you as uh, the day progresses. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Collins, and to you too. It's 7.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Building Africa with love. Bujambo Africa. If there are holes in this continental ship, we are its children. Let us go and stop the holes. Let us gladly do it with our hearts. And if we cannot, then let us die. We will make a plug of our brains and put them into the ship, but condemn it never. Catch us on Channel Africa from 10 to 11 a.m. every Friday and Sundays from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. It's 7.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The year 2020 marks the 75th anniversary of the United Nations and its founding charter. Human rights is a cross-cutting theme in all UN policies and programs in the key areas of peace and security, development, humanitarian assistance, among others. Ahead of the organization's anniversary commemoration on the 24th of October, we reflect on how the UN has helped advance human rights for all, even in difficult times such as now, when the world is battling the COVID-19 pandemic, which has literally affected every aspect of life. Now, joining us on the line is Abigail Nuko, head of the UN Human Rights Office in South Africa. Abigail, good morning, and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Thank you for having me, and uh, good morning to all your listeners. 
Now, firstly, briefly explain the role of the UN in advancing human rights and how exactly does the organization go about doing that? Well, in fact, the the United Nations mandate on human rights stems from the United Nations Charter, as you mentioned, this founding document that established the United Nations. And if you really go and look at that first article, what it stipulates over there is that in no uncertain terms, um, one of the fundamental aims and objectives of the United Nations is is to promote human rights and fundamental freedoms. And since then, we have had the adoption of the Universal Declaration uh, for human rights and a number of uh, other human rights treaties um, that states have ratified around the world. And part of the United Nations' work uh, essentially is to support countries uh, in the fulfillment of their human rights obligations. And we do this uh, essentially through undertaking human rights monitoring, fact-finding missions, undertaking research and studies on, on new emerging issues, uh, establishing a broader constituency for human rights, and, and really providing a forum for identifying and developing responses uh, for human rights. And I, and I should also add that, of course, um, to speak out objectively in the face of uh, human rights violations through the, the voice of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Now, what are some of the human rights issues that are of serious concern right now for the UN as we face this unprecedented public health crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, as you said, we are celebrating the 75th anniversary um, at this time of uh, great disruption uh, with COVID-19. Um, and it's having severe economic and, and social impacts and, and essentially really deepening inequality. Uh, but I think it's also a reminder that at times of struggle can become actually opportunities for positive change and transformation. Um, the opportunity that we have is to ensure that really human rights occupy a central place in the post-COVID-19 era. Um, it is the only way to ensure, in fact, that we recover from COVID-19 in a way that advances sustainable development and in a manner that really leaves no one behind. Um, I think this pandemic has taught us that a whole society approach is needed and that humanity is made more vulnerable where human rights are neglected and where gaps in, in human rights protection exist. And, I, I, you know, what I would say also is that every, every country context is different, and therefore the human rights context concerns will also differ. But some of the issues that the United Nations has identified as, as the most pressing um, is this whole, uh, you know, area around protecting lives and livelihoods, addressing inequality and non-discrimination, ensuring meaningful participation and accountability in processes um, that respond to COVID-19, and a number of countries have adopted emergency measures or security measures, and we need to really ensure that those measures are consistent with um, uh, human rights law, um, that they are temporary, that they are necessary, proportionate, and really aimed at protecting people in a non-discriminatory manner. Um, and finally, I would just add by saying that, of course, the principles of uh, international solidarity and cooperation, which many countries are, are speaking to, uh, and, and again, just to reiterate that we we must ensure that human rights uh, occupy a central place in the recovery phase to COVID-19. Now, Abigail, what's your assessment in terms of how governments are responding to the pandemic whilst uh, striking uh, a balance uh, with uh, human rights preservation? It's focusing on uh, three issues, the right to food, education, as well as sexual reproductive health and rights services. Well, in human rights terms, we would often refer to those issues as economic and social um, issues. Uh, And what is clear is that countries are in unprecedented times uh, and and in facing unprecedented challenges. Um, Some countries are demonstrating their commitment um, uh, to addressing these concerns. Others need more encouragement to do so or are not doing enough. Um, And I think really the the, the challenges cover a wider range of of issues. You've mentioned mentioned some of them, but there are many, many others as well. Um, And what we're also seeing is this interconnectedness between the pandemic and how national efforts need to be really complemented by global uh, global solidarity and international cooperation. Uh, You mentioned the food security issue. Um, You know, know, a lot of people, hundreds of millions of people were already suffering from hunger and malnutrition before the virus hit. And unless immediate action is taken, and not only at the national level, but at the global level, 
to address um, some of these challenges, we could see ourselves being confronted with, you know, you know, a global food food emergency, which is of course something that um, that um, you know no one wants to be able to see. But I think um, what is important is to remember that the respect and protection of human rights must be upheld even during a pandemic. The idea of, 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 of striking a balance between human rights and a pandemic suggests that somehow the two are really in conflict. And what we really need is for human rights to be central in response to the pandemic and in the recovery phases I've already highlighted. Um, in the educational sphere, sphere, what we are seeing is how the digital divide is affecting uh, the right to education during COVID-19. Uh, you know, of course, there have been a number of measures adopted by states to try and ensure uh, that education is continued, but there have been challenges, and these challenges are largely marked by uh, the inequality that we're seeing across uh, the world, and, and, you know, and it really becomes a recurring issue. And when it comes to sexual and reproductive health, um, you know, I think that we're seeing how the impact of quarantine and lockdown measures and being able to ac- access services and the increase in, in sexual violence um, and, you know, reports of, of mothers being forced to deliver children without the support um, that they need. And, and I think these are some of the, the critical issues that require uh, focused attention. Now, given that the pandemic has actually added on to long-existing problems, as we've just uh, discussed, and around human rights, how has the UN adapted its operations to be even more effective for the benefit of those in need of assistance? Well, I think uh, we are essentially in an era of uh, adaptation, all of us, to the new normal, as as has been said, and, and the UN is, is no exception in that regard. Um, what this has meant is that we have had to repurpose our resources to be able to respond to this crisis, to ensure that we are indeed fit for purpose. Um, you will see, um, you know, the World Health Organization leading in terms of the global health response during this time, but all United Nations agencies, without exception, have dedicated their efforts to responding to this um, crisis based on on their different agency mandates. Um, From a human rights perspective, um, what I would say is that um, the human rights norms and standards that are are applicable in times of crisis as well as in times of normalcy. You know, so countries don't sort of forfeit their human rights obligations during, during a pandemic. So what we've been trying to do is at least to work hard over the past few months to provide the necessary assistance to states to adhere to their obligations, advocate for the promotion and protection of human rights um, in the response to, to, to COVID-19 and draw attention to the situation of populations that are most in need, whether that is persons deprived of their liberty, older persons, persons with disability, women and girls who experience uh, gender, gender-based violence, homeless people. I mean, really, the list really goes on. Um, and um, we've, you know, we've produced a lot of guidance um, to assist states in addressing some of the concerns of these populations. Uh, and finally, you know, I would say, sorry, go ahead, Abigail. No, no, no. I, I was just going to add that, you know, in South Africa, we have a number of UN agencies under the leadership of the UN, UN resident coordinator that are working on these issues as well. Now, finally, what would you like to emphasize in commemoration of the UN 75th anniversary very briefly? I think, I think commemoration of this day is an affirmation that the United Nations stands for all humanity, upholding fundamental values and freedoms. Uh, we should not forget that the UN emerged uh, following the scourge of two world wars, and it is significant because the community of nations basically came together uh, and said, never, never again shall we accept such human calamity. So in this sense, I would say that this day is a clarion call to all of us we the peoples, as the preamble of the UN Charter says, that we belong to an international community that stands for peace, security, development, and human rights without exception nor distinction. So in that sense, the United Nations belongs to everybody, and we must work together to build the future that we want. Abigail, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. That's Abigail Nuckel, head of the UN Human Rights Office in South Africa, and she was joining us on the line from Pretoria. It is 7.29 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine.
It's 7.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Onele Nzinzi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Authorities in Nigeria have ordered a 24-hour curfew in Lagos State in response to ongoing protests against alleged police brutality, which they say have turned violent. Suspected Allied Democratic Force rebels freed more than 1,300 prisoners in an assault at a jail in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. And the World Health Organization has warned that over 400,000 lives would be lost to TB this year alone if the disease is overlooked amid the fight against the coronavirus. Channel African News, I am Onelensinsi. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. Thank you, Onele. It is 7.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, many parents don't consider the amount of admin and management that goes into educating their children. Often, they only think about the activities in the classroom and on the sports field and seldom give thought to all the processes in the background, such as managing the school budget that have to happen to allow learning to take place. Now, to help us understand what goes into the back end of a school's smooth operation, we are now joined on the line by Willem Ketsoff, CEO of the D6 Group, South Africa's leading online school management platform. Willem, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lou, and morning to your listeners. Now, Willem, firstly, why is it important for parents to be more informed about what it takes for their children to be schooled? Uh, well, schools are essentially uh, businesses that need to provide a great service to the learner and to the parents. And parents are a critical element within the school. And if the parents do not understand the sensitivities and complexities of the school, uh, they will not necessarily support the school in the correct way. Um, we, we need to be more conscious uh, of the complexities of the school so that from a parent perspective, we understand the complexities that the schools are sitting with so that we can provide the right support um, and care. Because I think a lot of the uh, a lot of general public might be oblivious towards the complexities of managing school. Now, can you explain in simple terms how schools are actually hugely complex businesses? Well, if we if we look at a school uh, as an organization, it's it's got an incredibly complex product that it needs to offer uh, the learners, which is the CAPS curriculum in most cases. Uh, the CAPS curriculum cons- consists of, uh, within a, in, in, a, in the school environment in general, it's, it's 12 grades. Each grade is about 8 to 10 subjects. Each subject has about 8 to 10 learning outcomes. And each of these learning outcomes have assessment level tasks that needs to be completed. Now, the multiplication of all of that is the actual product that needs to be delivered. So it's a very complex product that needs to be offered, but it's also the service that needs to be offered to parents. Um, and you've got probably the most complex uh, customer, um, as we all can understand, which is the parent and their child. Uh, and these organizations have to operate uh, effectively and we sometimes forget about the complexities of managing this. It's similar to a business. If we think about a business, the first thing we, we, we normally ask is, how well is that business being run and managed? Uh, but my experience is that sometimes within the school's environment, we, we tend to forget about that and we primarily focus on what is happening in the classroom, which in effect is the most important thing. But if the managerial aspects of the business is not run and managed properly, then it will have a negative effect on the learning. Now, speaking so, of that, uh, do South African schools have uh, people with the right business management expertise? What's your analysis? Well, in, in the school environment, our experience is that in most cases, uh, the, the school managing, managing body is sometimes and mostly people that came from the education space itself and not necessarily from business. And that's why... 
the support to management, uh, the training to management, and allowing management to have access to proper management systems um, is vital uh, because we can't expect that uh, managerial staff of schools to run a school and not have access to real-time data to make decisions or not have access to sound management platforms in order to provide them with the ability to be efficient. Um, irrespective of how well you are trained or, uh, or the experience level that you have, uh, if you try to run a company without the backing of proper uh, management platforms, um, it's almost a, an impossible task. Now, Willem, let's talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and how it has added to schools' huge management burden. Well, uh, I I believe what what COVID uh, highlighted for us is rather the importance of uh, ensuring that we are proactive in in the implementation of cloud-based management platforms in schools so that school staff members um, have access to the data and can manage the school remotely if needed. Uh, I do not believe that the the COVID pandemic will have a significant uh, disruptive effect in terms of how schools are being managed or how schools run from a day-to-day operational perspective. I do believe that schools will go back to, let's call it the normal way of doing things um, as soon as we are out of the level one and as soon as COVID has been lifted. Uh, But... Uh, it is important, what has been highlighted rather, is those schools that did not have these management platforms in place found themselves in a bit of a predicament that they, they could not be on campus, which meant that they could not have access to their school information and their managerial environment, uh, which meant that the school couldn't really run. Other schools who were proactive in the implementation of these type of managerial platforms could almost operate as normal, just remotely. With, with little to no disruption, apart from the fact that the learners obviously had to learn from, learn from home. So what so, sort of support can schools that are struggling to get to, um, you know, to enable themselves a smooth operation um, so that learners get the best education? Well, I, I suppose it's a, it's, a, it's a conscious decision from the school managing body to, to have a bit of an internal assessment in terms of how well do they operate and, and do they have the best managerial platforms available that they, that they can get? Uh, because it's what, what we find is we, we always refer to the unknown unknowns. Within the school's environment, uh, it does seem that schools operate, and not generalizing across all, but a lot of schools operate the same way as they've been operating for the past 40 years. And they do not necessarily push themselves to innovate from a managerial perspective uh, because they don't want to tamper with something that works uh, and it's perceived works. Uh, it's not necessarily that don't go out of that comfort zone. Um, and that's why we see that schools are stuck in legacy in a lot of the cases uh, and management of schools. And it primarily resides with either the governing body or the, the, the directorate um, and the principal to drive the change and to say, I want to ensure that my school operates as effectively as possible. Uh, so it's a top-down, it, it's a top-down application or implementation that the SMTs of schools need to make. What advice for parents in terms of uh, how they can better play their part to ensure schools a smooth operation? Do you have? Well, the governing body of well, most of the in the uh, public schools or governmental schools, the governing body is a representation of the parents, um, or, and parents at least need needs to understand the pressure that school management are under in order to manage the school, but they also need to ask the questions to the school governing body and to the school um, management team itself to ensure that, probe the question to say, are you as effective as you can be and what have you done to ensure that you innovate within the way that you manage the school uh, to ensure that we do not get complacent uh, and just remain the same as what we've been for the past 50 or 40 years. So parents, it's more of a support role. It's not to, it, it's, it's not to slap anyone on the wrist, but it's rather a support role to say, as a parent body, we want to support the school to be, first of all, involved and support as far as possible and not just assume that the school will be managed and that it's a hygiene factor and no one has to worry about it. So parents can really support schools at least from a, 
just offering their their help uh, from a managerial perspective, but also uh, probe the school and the, and the school management team to identify or ask them have they have they uh, looked at alternatives and are they as effective as they can be. Willem, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, Linda. Appreciate it. That's uh, Willem Kessoff, uh, CEO of the D6 Group, South Africa's leading online school management platform used by more than 2,500 schools around the country. Joining us on the line. It's 7.40 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Darfur, located in western Sudan, has suffered the consequences of more than a decade-long conflict, although much has changed. Following the ousting of the former president of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir, and the installation of the new transitional government, the overall security situation remains fragile. And violent clashes continue. Teams from the global medical aid organization Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, remain on the ground providing humanitarian assistance to affected communities in, for instance, Roquero in the remote Jebel Mara area, where people have lived through a decade of conflict, isolation, displacement and violence. To tell us more about the difficulties faced by patients and how the MSF teams try to overcome challenges, here's the organization's health advisor for East Africa, Bakri Abu Bakr. In February, Dr. Sudar Borders started providing medical service in a rural hospital in Rokere. Rokere is basically is a big village surrounded by clusters of villages. It's a place where most of the displaced people uh, find a safe place for them when they fled the sporadic conflict in the recent times. Also, it was a place where all displaced people settled in for quite some time. They are facing difficulties to go back to their origin uh, villages due uh, to the ongoing conflict, and they are finding somehow uh, some of the service provided. So we started doing our activities there in February. We provide outpatient consultation. It's 24 hours, emergency services. We also provide inpatient service where we hospitalize some of the patients in need of more care. We also run a therapeutic feeding center for malnourished uh, children who suffer from complications of malnutrition and other complications like diarrhea or respiratory tract infections. Also, we treat people with injuries like gunshot wounds or those who have injuries for different reasons. In another place called Umo, it's an uh, enclave between two mountains in Jabal Marra. We provide some of the activities there like maternal and neonatal health care and also nutrition care. This area is very mountainous, very hard to reach. No cars can reach there, and there are no roads. So what we do actually is to reach there using donkeys and camels. This is unusual way in the 21st century, but it's very convenient in these places. So our teams go there by donkeys. We ship our logistic items and materials and medical materials using the camels. So we go there basically in caravans. Uh, that's one of the ways that we adapted our activities. So the situation is quite Difficult, but we are trying as much as possible to adapt to overcome the logistic issues. Medically speaking, also we are trying to adapt ourselves to what we see. Most of the cases now are cases of malnutrition, cases of pregnant women who cannot find care. So we try to provide the care in their places. However, certain cases need to be referred to uh, better facilities. So we still we use donkeys to transport them as an ambulances, for example. So these donkey ambulances become our only means of transportation in this part of the world. Now, how would you describe the reaction of people affected on the ground? You know, they've known violence for over a decade and now they are faced with this new battle in the form of a virus. What are some of the stories shared by your teams on the ground? As I told you before, this area has been disconnected from the world for more than a decade. 
There was no health services whatsoever. No international organization managed to reach these areas. No government services provided in this area for quite a long time. The people there are very resilient. The top of the mountain in Jabal Mara, it's a very huge and vast area, very fertile. So they rely on farming. And most of these areas, it's one of the best areas where they grow oranges, for example. There are two huge lakes there. People manage to have their own source of food there and they rely on it. It's not enough, but they managed to survive for quite a long time. They don't have any healthcare services whatsoever. As I said, there are no roads, so they built a kind of stone pathway that goes from the top of the mountain to other areas. And they transport their goods, their crops uh, using, using the donkeys and camels, as I said. The first time we managed to reach these areas, like for example, Umo area, that was in September, the people were expected to, to see us. Uh, we arrived in a caravan of donkeys and camels, and they were so happy to see us. They provided all the necessary to make our stay comfortable with what they have. They are very hospitable, very resilient, and I think there is a very good collaboration between us and them to understand their needs. The first important thing for us, the, the big priority, is to understand their needs and to provide the medical care that respond to what they need, actually. Most of it, as I said, is a provision of basic health care there and also to provide maternal care for the pregnant women there uh, as well. But in general, they're very welcoming, they're very happy to see us, and they're providing whatever they can to make our stay comfortable and fruitful for them. Why is it so important to highlight the unfolding humanitarian crisis in Darfur? What is MSF hoping can be done by the global community? When it comes to Darfur, we are talking about a very long conflict. It's one of the conflicts that shape the social, economic and political relationship in Sudan. It's a quite long conflict. People have been affected tremendously by this conflict. I don't think Darfur will go back to normal as it used to be in the past. With the improving security situation, I think most of the international community have the perception that things are done in Darfur. It's not. People are still in the displacement camps. They are afraid to go back to their villages of origin. There are still very important problems about land, about resources having been solved. Peace agreement is still under negotiation between the government and the armed forces. So, yes, security situation has improved, but the situation on ground hasn't yet. And the people needs are still more or less similar, especially when it comes to health care, when it comes to providing them with a necessary means of living. So I don't think that it's over yet. And still lots of things need to be done in order to provide the people with what they want and what they need, actually. That's uh, Bakri Abu Bakr, health advisor for the Global Medical Aid Agency Doctors Without Borders in East Africa on the line from Nairobi and Kenya, speaking to Janine Kutzer. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. It's 7.49 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabi Solohoku. Thanks, Lulu, and good morning. 
Members of both Houses of Parliament will this afternoon debate South Africa's President Sir Ramaphosa's address on the Economic Reconstruction and Recovery Plan. Ramaphosa announced last week that South Africa would embark on a massive public works and job creation drive in response to coronavirus. The president said his plan could unlock more than 60 billion US dollars in investment over the next four years and create more than 800,000 jobs. He also announced a three-month extension of the special $21 COVID-19 fund. South African Opposition DA Member of Parliament's Communications Committee, Pumzile van Dam, has called on the SABC, unions and other stakeholders to engage in meaningful discussions. This after the SABC notified employees that, according to the Labour Relations Act, it is now at liberty to unilaterally implement contemplated retrenchments following failed talks facilitated by the CCMA. As many as 600 full-time staff could be retrenched. Labour union Bemau has threatened legal action should the SABC go ahead with retrenchments. However, the SABC says it will afford consulting parties a chance to make a written submission regarding proposals over the organisational structure or alternatives. Van Dam was speaking after the SABC made presentations to the committee. I think Bemau at the last meeting said they understand that there need to be cost cuts but the manner in which the engagement has happened has not been proper and SABC says it's been proper. All I am saying as a plea is that can you guys just sit down, find common ground and talk. This constant animosity, this constant fighting is not helping anyone and this appeals to both sides. The Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in Johannesburg will this morning continue to hear testimony related to South African Rail Port and Pipeline Company Transnet when the Executive Manager in the Finance Department of Freight Rail, Yusuf Laha, takes the stand. On Tuesday, former Managing Director of Rail for Hatch Engineering, Hank Bester, told the Commission he was approached by Gupta associate Salim Essa, who wanted Hatch to make his company a supply development partner for Phase 2 of a Transnet Manganese rail project worth the 48 million US dollars. Bester says Essa wanted a 4 million US dollar cut from the Transnet business. He says he first met Essa when he took over an earlier meeting which Hatch executives had arranged with former Transnet Chief Financial Officer Anoj Singh to discuss payments. Yes, um, Chair, I have to tell you that this was a very strange meeting, as I said, because Mr. Uh, Singh was sitting there as if he was on a leech, um, so to say. Um, yeah, we, um, we started off the meeting by saying to him exactly why we asked for this meeting because of the amount of money that was owed to us. And, you know, I clearly remember the answer that he gave us was it didn't give us any comfort that he was actually addressing our concerns. Plus, the, the presence of Mr. Salim Esa was for us something that we couldn't understand. Livingstone Mayor Eugene Mapur says that the adverse impact of coronavirus in Zambia's tourism sector has had a negative effect on people's livelihood countrywide. The mayor says Livingstone has severely been hard hit by COVID-19, forcing most people out of employment, as tourism is known to be the only surviving sector in the city after the extinction of the timber and textile industries. Mapua says that the drive to promote domestic tourism is the only engine to revive the once lucrative industry. Kenya's Agriculture Ministry has made new proposals aimed at reviewing the coffee sector and, and restore it to its former status as a key foreign exchange owner. The Coffee Bill 2020, which is currently up for public participation, bans hawking of loans to farmers by marketing agents with coffee as collateral. Agriculture Cabinet Secretary Peter Munya says that the government is intent on reforming the sector, particularly rooting out cartels, which have deeply infested the sector, and use laws to exploit the farmer. 
The US dollar is trading at 381.49 Nigerian Nara. 11.30 Botswana Pula, 107.85 Kenyan Shilling and 2018 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, we'll start in Brazil. One US dollar there costs 5 rupees 59. Russia, 77 rubles 58. India, 73 rupees 31. And China, a dollar costs 61.67. And in South Africa, it's a trading at 16 rand 49. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,902 and platinum at $857 pounds, while brand crude oil is at $42.29 a barrel. Africa, your favorite channel. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It wraps up African Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Malme, technical producer Murray Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za, WhatsApp on plus 277-6300327, or tweet us at Channel Africa 1. Our taking us to the top of our for the news is Sorrow, Tears and Blood by Fela Kuti. Have a great day and keep safe. Everybody run, run, run Everybody scatter, scatter Some people lost some bread Someone nearly died Someone just died Police, they come, hammy, they come Confusion everywhere Here Seven minutes later, all don't cool down, brother. Police don't go away, army don't disappear. Them leave sorrow, tears, and blood. Them regular trade Them leave sorrow, tears, and blood. Them regular trade Them regular trademark. Them regular trademark. That is why. Everybody run, run, run yeah. Everybody scatter, scatter yeah. Someone nearly died yeah. Some people lost some bread yeah. Someone just died yeah. Police, they come, I mean, they come yeah. Confusion everywhere yeah. uh, Seven minutes later All don't go down, brother Police don't go away I mean, don't disappear them live sorrow, tears and blood. Them regular trademark. Them live sorrow, tears and blood. Them regular trademark. Them regular trademark. Them regular trademark. La 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 la. My people say they fear too much. We fear for the thing we know see. We fear for the air around us. For freedom, we fear to fight for liberty, we fear to fight for justice, we fear to fight for happiness. We always get reason to fear. We know one die, we know one wound, we know one quench, we know one go. I get one child, my mother for house, my party for house, I won't build a house, I don't build a house, I know one quench, I won't enjoy, I know one go. So policeman go slap your face, you know go talk. Army man go weep, your yash go they look like donkey. Rhodesia they do them bone, all it does they have for nothing. South Africa they do them home. Them live sorrow, tears and blood. Them regular trademark. Them regular trademark. Regular trade mark. Regular trade mark. That is why.
the run, run, run. Yeah. Everybody's got a scatter. Yeah. Some people lost some bed. Yeah. Someone nearly died. Yeah. Police, they come, I mean, they come. Confusion everywhere. Yeah. Ah, and so, time when they go, time no wait for nobody, like that. Ah, but police go to come, I mean go to come, with confusion, in style, like this. Everybody run, run, run. Everybody scatter, scatter. 